This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the latest episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball, along with Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill in New York City. My name is Tyler Mon. I'm on a different uh, headset slash microphone this week. I might sound a little different, but you two dudes sound just as glamorous as always. Uh, fellas, how are you? I'm fine, Tyler. Uh, I think Ben has something he wants to lead <laughs> today's episode with, though. So I'm going to go ahead and just give him that stage now. Oh, ben, wow. do you have something you want to tell the audience? Wow, we're, we're starting this segment with a real harsh <laughs> we're tone. diving right in. Yeah, man. Yeah. Sam, Tyler's Sam just talking went about how after glamorous it. we sound. Then the school marm comes in. Sam was like, nah, I'm, I'm done. I'm screwing around <laughs> <No>. here. <laughs> There's a bus coming. Ben, but let yes. me throw you under it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Actually, let me turn the keys on the ignition on this bus real quick. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have something to say. Um, this is very embarrassing. And one of the most confusing things I've ever been involved with professionally. Um, last week, I was talking about having gone to Pensacola. And one of the days I was there, they played as their Copa identity, the Pensacola poke to poke. That is the correct pronunciation, poke to poke. When I went to Pensacola, I was saying pock to pock. And I got corrected and told, no, it's poke to poke. Then when I got home, I convinced myself that I had been saying poke to poke and I got corrected to pock to pock. <laughs> then in the email in my newsletter and a subsequent MILB.com story, I put a parenthetical next to poke to poke saying pronounced pock to pock, which was wrong. Then on the podcast, I pronounced it correctly and said poke to poke and then thought I was pronouncing it incorrectly and issued a correction in you which I said, no, actually, to the incorrect pock. thing. Yeah. And the correction was wrong. And it's poke to poke. <laughs> if everyone, if anyone just actually followed that, I, I commend you. What, just say the right thing. Poke the right to, thing is Pensacola poke to poke, which I said okay. in the segment last week and then issued a correction saying it was pock to pock. It's actually poke to poke. And it is, to reiterate, in uh, the oldest ball sport, sport in the Americas, traced back thousands of years, you know, played by the Mayans. Uh, it's a unique identity that the Blue Wahoos uh, began to employ this year for Copa. And uh, it's poke to poke. That's all I got to say. <laughs> it is not pock to pock. There will not be a correction to the correction to the correction next week. It ends right here. It is poke to poke. I'm sorry for anyone I led astray. I apologize to the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, minor league baseball, to you, Tyler, and especially to you, Sam, who has to sit next to me next to this confusing, muddled failure and somehow keep it together. I, I want to reiterate, you're not a failure for this. I mean, one, one of the interesting things about all this is, for me, is a sport that was spelled back in the day 
not using the characters we use today. Right. We're trying to like put, you know, a romantic language or, you know, however you wanted to define it, European language onto a Mesoamerican sport. And things are bound to get lost in the translation. So I think we're dealing with like centuries of linguistic issues here. Um, but I, I'm I'm glad we know what it is now. Poke to poke. Poke to poke. And poke that's final. Okay, so the pock to pock playing. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, no, but what's interesting too is you said you got a text uh, from Eric Bremer, who is with the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, who said their pronunciation is based on conversations that they've essentially had with academics who have studied this sport. So it's not as though there was like a pronunciation guide that indigenous civilizations left for us. Like, hey, by the way, when you come up with, when you dig out this uh the stone chiseled scoreboard um, many millennia from now, this is how we were saying this game. Like, it's kind of cool. This is something that even uh, the people who study it are like, yeah, we think this is what it is. Uh, and let's go with that. I think that's yeah. a good story. Yeah. And I think that speaks to both why this is a great identity because it's provides such an opportunity and an avenue for learning. And it really takes, uh, you know, Copa in a direction that it hasn't been taken before. Um, but it also speaks to the challenges and that you don't have a wide range of knowledge and uh, materials to draw from. So I think some of the activations are harder. Um, but yeah, when I was texting with Eric about my mispronunciation, um, it ultimately concluded with him saying, hey, it's free publicity. And uh, hey, you're right, Eric, because here we <laughs> yeah, are talking, about talking endlessly about the poke to poke. So if you like the poke to poke, check it out on the Pensacola Blue Wahoo's website, buy some merchandise. Here's a free plug for them. Uh, let it keep on rolling. It is the coolest uh, Copa identity this year for the the new identities. And um, it is one that Ben, of course, has gotten to explore as he has much of the minor league baseball landscape here in 2023 as we kick things off on this week's episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. Thanks for hanging out with us. You can get in touch with us, of course, podcast at MILB.com. You can find us on social media and uh, you can give us your, uh, your thoughts, your questions, your comments about the second half of minor league baseball season in any of those spots. And Ben, uh, I know a couple of stories on the site, some good stuff with the newsletter this week. Uh, One of these stories, you're actually going back a little ways to your first road trip of the season, but you've also got some stuff to cover, not just from that one, Tacoma, uh, but also Biloxi, Pensacola. Uh, Tell us about uh, the first story topic du jour or du week, whatever week is in French. Yeah, what is it? You were the one in France recently. I know, I was just in France. Probably should have learned that. Yeah, week <laughs> as I type in translate.google.com. <laughs> uh, but yes, um, it is um, definitely the most confusing and exhilarating Semaine, time of the year. By the way, Semane. S-E-M-A-I-N-E. I remember that from yeah, some I high known school that. French classes. Um, yeah, I, I just wrote a story from my first trip, um, planning my next one. I've been writing about the trips in between. Uh, to take it back for the year I took in May, um, I visited uh, Cheney Stadium, home of the Tacoma Rainiers. And um, while I was there, I talked to an usher named Chester Rito, uh, who works within the dugout club, which is, you know, seats right behind uh, home plate. Um, They're actually closer to the pitcher's mound um, than the batter. No, closer to home plate than the batter is to the pitcher's mound. Anyway, Chester is a real interesting character, one of those beloved game day employees, uh, he grew up as a Brooklyn Dodgers fan in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. 
Uh, he grew up as a Dodgers fan, you know, developed a love of baseball, rooting for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 50s, eventually moved out west, uh, you know, to the Tacoma area, working as a furniture salesman for J.C. Penney, retired, said, what do I do now? Well, I love baseball. And um, he's been with the Rainiers for 14 years. Um, one interesting thing about Chester is he brings a vintage newspaper to the ballpark every every homestand or if not every game. Um, that he shares with fans, that he gives to fans, that he uses to spark memories and, and conversation. When I was there in May, he had a 1957 copy of the Sporting News focusing on uh, that year's All-Star game and Stan Musial was on the cover. And he was like, hey, I'm going to give this to uh, you know a diehard Cardinals fan who sits, you know, season ticket holder in Tacoma who, you know, sits in whatever seat. And he does that sort of thing all year, you know, scrounging uh, thrift shops, eBay, um, you know, always having those conversation pieces. One of his favorite tricks is to, um, if you see someone eating peanuts, he says, ah, those peanuts are no good. And he says, let me go get you some better peanuts. So he takes the person's peanuts, puts them in a cup, but at the bottom of the cup is a baseball. So when he gives the, the peanuts back that allegedly had something wrong with them, he gives them a baseball in the cup with the peanuts on top of it. Um, so just that kind of thing, vintage newspapers, sharing memories of being a baseball fan that go back over 70 years to the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, you know, giving treats and presents and surprises like the baseballs. Um, just one of those beloved ballpark characters. And, you know, that was a story that I knew I was going to write uh, when I was in Tacoma, that this was definitely going to be a story I've got to write. And this is what happens this time of year. Didn't get to it initially, but uh, I really wanted to write about Chester and check that out. And you also wrote about going back to Pensacola because we talked about Pensacola last week. But um, you, I don't want to say a ballpark character, but a ballpark employee. If you've ever seen a picture of a blue Wahoos game, it, it very likely came from this person and it very likely was incredibly good. I mean, some of the images that they come out of the blue Wahoos just make it look like a wonderful stadium, highlight the players really well. They've had some good ones in recent years, starting with Yuri Perez. Um, but Ben, you wrote a story about the team photographer for Blue Wahoos. Yeah, and this is one of those slice of life stories. Just, you know, the there's so many people in a minor league ballpark and how they came to their jobs can often be unique. But the like you said, Sam, the Blue Wahoos, um, the photography out of that uh, team, out of that organization is, has been phenomenal for years. And it's something I, I've long noticed. But um, as is the way with photographers, sometimes, unfortunately, you, you might not put a name to it. Uh, but their photographer is a man named Nino Mendez. And uh, he is from talking about pronunciation issues in Pensacola. He is what I've always referred to as originally a native of Guatemala, but he was saying it without the hard G more like, like Guatemala. Hmm. And so I'm trying to internalize that as well as I mangle and mispronounce my way through minor league baseball landscape every season. But, you know, so he's from, Guatemala, Guatemala, Guatemala City. I'm just going to use the RG so I don't mess it up anymore. Uh, you know, grew up, you know, more of a soccer fan than baseball. Um, eventually came with his family to the United States, went to college in Pensacola, uh, is now a um, Spanish teacher at that same college he went to years ago, um, but always loved photography his whole life and uh, developed it, you know, was, would do photography as a side gig, working weddings and events. And uh, one one day in, I believe it was 2018, he just went to a Pensacola Blue, Blue Wahoos game and they had fireworks. And he said, wow, that's really cool. I bet I could get some good shots. So he looked up when the next fireworks show was and not in the ballpark, but from across the street or even across the water a little bit across the Pensacola Bay. Uh, he set up shop and took some great fireworks photos um, after a Blue Wahoos game, you know, put it on Instagram, tagged the Blue Wahoos, didn't think about anything about it. 
Uh, but lo and behold, the team saw it and uh, got in touch with him and said, hey, we need a photographer next season. And, you know, he had never taken baseball photography and, you know, had a lot to learn on that end. But that was his uh, inroad to becoming a, a baseball team photographer, a minor league photographer. And like we said, he does incredible work. And, you know, he's telling me about how his relationship with the players, you know, really creates different shots, especially the Latin players, you know, where you can communicate, you know, in Spanish and maybe forge a stronger connection, uh, how he likes to forge connection with fans and not just, you know, set up shop, you know, in a camera well and just do on field stuff. But, you know, he goes all over the ballpark, outside, inside the ballpark, uh, you know, it was a great body of work in Pensacola with the Blue Wahoos and is now thinking, you know, hey, who knows what this leads to? And, you know, I'd love to keep doing baseball photography and, you know, maybe take it to the major leagues if I can. So just one of those stories how, you know, someone without a baseball background do one thing leads to another and, and there you are. And, uh, you know, I like to highlight like people like that. Nino Mendez with the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. That is a very cool story. Um, ben, you also got a chance to swing through Biloxi. I know a lot of stuff uh, stood out about getting a chance to go back there for your first time in a little while. Uh, correct. What uh, What are you highlighting from the Biloxi trip? Yeah, that's the one uh, stop from my most recent road trip we haven't talked about too much yet. It was the fourth and final stop of that road trip, Birmingham to Montgomery to uh, Pensacola <laughs> to uh, Biloxi. I hadn't been there for eight years uh, to MGM Park. Uh, in 2015 was when the team debuted. If you remember, they were the Huntsville Stars, moved to Biloxi in 2015. It was a whole saga at the time because the ballpark wasn't ready and the team spent the first couple months of the season on the road. Um, I was there in 2015 when the ballpark was done in the sense they were hosting games there, but it wasn't you know totally done. I remember there was still construction outside of the ballpark and um, it was still a bit of a work in progress. So it's been eight years since I've been there, and it was, it was great to be back. Um, it was a Tuesday night, so a low-key night in general. Also, it had rained all day, and uh, I was a little worried about a game getting in at all, but it cleared up and uh, turned out to be a great night in Biloxi. Um, you know, one of the defining features of MGM Park, home of the Biloxi Shuckers, is the Beau Rivage Casino. Looms beyond the outfield in the kind of center field, right field position. And, um, you know, it just, you can't help but notice it. And when you, if you've ever attended a game in that ballpark, you probably had that burned in your memory because it's just such a part of the landscape of watching a game there. And it's also the tallest building in Mississippi, which I was kind of surprised to learn. I mean, it's a big building, but it doesn't scream like skyscraper. I'd never thought about the tallest building in Mississippi before what it might be, but it is that Beau Rivage Casino, uh, right behind MGM park, you know, the ballpark itself, um, quite beige in, in the uh, architecture and the, uh, and the coloring, um, you know, 360 degree concourse, lots of food options. Um, I designated eater, a man named Jimmy Gautier, you know, very much a Gulf coast, you know, Cajun background. Um, he, he can't, he came to games a lot and he loves the jambalaya there. You know, he's a guy who, who knows his jambalaya and he said that they make it at a Shuckers game is as good as they do anywhere else. So um, I can't think of anywhere else I've seen Jambalaya at a minor league ballpark. Um, did some interviews there. I'm working on a story now on um, the unorthodox route that one of their pitchers, uh, Caleb Bowman, took to become took to affiliated ball. He's 26 years old and in his first affiliated season played internationally. Can maybe talk about that more next week. But uh, as with everywhere else, you know, still got more to come from Biloxi. But um, it was good to wrap up my trip there. And uh, great that with the weather and got in the game and uh, it's good to see the Shuckers for the first time in eight years. And uh, maybe next week we can talk about my next road trip because that's coming up in a couple weeks now. 
But for now, I'm still just trying to get as much done for my previous road trips before I go on the next one. Everything just kind of blurs together this time of year. All right, Ben. Well, um, we have a uh, kind of a capstone to a topic of promotion that we discussed last week on this week's episode of the show before the show. It's the first time we've ever seen someone get active exercise uh, in a segment of the show before the show. Tee it up for us. What do we got this week for our interview? Yeah, Dan Mason, Rochester Red Wings. As you'll soon hear, he did this entire interview on a treadmill, and it's tied into the recent homestand endeavor that he's going to talk all about, the intentional walk in Rochester. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. A podcast is obviously an audio medium, but nonetheless... I want to explain what's happening visually right now because our guest right now, Dan Mason of the Rochester Red Wings, is doing the interview, and this is a show-before-the-show podcast first, while walking on a treadmill. He is on our screens, you know, bobbing up and down, getting that cardio, and he's doing this for a reason because we're here to talk to Dan about the Rochester Red Wings' intentional walk. For the entirety of their previous homestand, July 4th through the 9th, they had someone from the team or a community member around the clock, on a treadmill. It was for a good cause, but it's also slightly ridiculous. It's definitely a lot of fun, and we want to hear about it. So, Dan, um, I'm glad you're not winded yet. Thanks for being here on the show before the show podcast. My my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. So the intentional walk, you did it for the first time, I believe, in 2022. This is the second year. Um, Tell us about how this came about and, you know, what the thought process was that led to you doing this. So we wanted to do something to remind our fans uh, about the importance of leading a healthy lifestyle and, you know, certainly our staff too, you know, it's, it's really easy to uh, get into, uh, you know, some, I guess, poor eating habits or, uh, you know, when you, when you work, when you do what we do, right, there's always hot dogs around and man, it's hard to resist this Weigel's hot dog here in Rochester. So uh, we eat a lot of hot dogs. And uh, so you just got to mix in a few miles on the treadmill or walking around the ballpark. And uh, we wanted to make sure that we do something to make it fun for fans to exercise, but also create some some goodwill. Uh, last year, our focus was on uh, mental health, which coming out of uh, COVID was, uh, you know, that was really a hot topic. And this year, our focus um, was more on mentoring, youth mentoring. So we worked with uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Rochester, of Geneva, and Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Greater Rochester. So three great mentoring organizations. And Wegmans was our partner on this again this year. And that's one of their focuses as well. So really worked out well, uh, you know, lending a lot of promotional support for those three organizations, getting their message out but ultimately trying to raise money for all of them. And uh, we raised over 10 grand for them. So it was, uh, it's been a good, uh, it's been a good run as they say. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's one thing to raise money, but it's another to do something that really brings attention uh, throughout a sustained amount of time. And you guys definitely did that. Um, But, you know, logistically it seems 
pretty difficult to pull something like this off. How many people were on the treadmill over the course of this homestand and scheduling that must have been, uh, you know, quite an onerous process. Yeah. So we, um, we had half hour shifts and we had two treadmills going pretty much the whole time. The goal was to have two people on both treadmills every shift, but we knew that was going to be hard to, uh, make a reality. So, um, we just tried our best to do that. And we came up with a goal of 500 miles. So, you know, we kind of kept track of it after day one, I was a little bit nervous. I'm not going to kid you. Um, but really things really picked up steam as, uh, we got more and more buy-in from members of our community and our fans. Uh, so the, the onus wasn't all on our staff, but certainly we logged, the. Uh, I will say definitely well over 400 miles as a staff and uh, everyone bought in. It was a great team building exercise for our staff. And, uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun too. Yeah. And you talk about getting that buy-in and, and having people work in half hour shifts for some reason, the shifts between three and six in the morning just stand out. How, how did well, you get, get people for the, those specific night owl times? So last year we did it 24 hours a day this year. Um, we, we scaled back to a uh, 9am till, till 11pm. Okay. There you go. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the, the, the poor, uh, men and women that got stuck doing the all nighter, they were pretty much worthless the next day. So, uh, <laughs> we, we, we decided as a staff that, uh, you know, again, in keeping with our theme of keeping, staying healthy, maybe not the best thing to do, um, pull an all nighter. And then uh, try to work uh, during a six-game homestand. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot more sense, and is a relief even as somebody who didn't participate to feel like at least there was a little bit of a break in there. Um, you talk about getting community buy-in. You and help that helped you. You guys push towards your goal of 500 miles. How do you feel like the reaction built as people realized, oh, they really are doing this again? Well, I think the media was very helpful with that. We had a lot of TV stations out here covering us on that. We kicked it off on the 4th of July. Um, So we had basically every TV station in town, a lot of the radio stations talking about us, but also that some of the TV personalities joined us on the treadmills. We had our mayor, our county executive, both joined us on the treadmills. We had a a congressman join us. Um, We had uh, a lot of notable people in our community jump on and help us out. Um, but again, really kudos goes to our staff who logged, uh, a lot of miles. Um, and it, it helped also that in our intern screening process this year, uh, we only hired cross country runners or track runners. Uh, so that certainly helped our cause this year. That's something we hope to continue to do in the future. That's what I was going to ask, Dan. You uh, you said after day one, you were a little bit nervous about getting that 500-mile accomplishment. Was there like, you know, you think about an Olympic swimming team that goes out and they've got four athletes who participate in legs. Did you have like an anchor? Did you, after day one, did you turn it over to people? Where you're like, we got to make up some ground. We got to get somebody out there who's going to know what they're doing here. I think we just, uh, you know, we did the math going in. And we figured we needed to average a certain amount of miles every day. And after day one, we were about 25 miles short of our average. So I think at that point, Saturday and Sunday, we started running instead of walking because we knew we needed to uh, make up a lot of ground. And uh, and that certainly helped. And then, uh, you know, I was partly joking about the uh, 
administrative assistants or interns, but we did have uh, one young man uh, who goes to school here locally who I told him at the end of the day, Nate, you're going to jump on there and uh, just make sure we get to where we need to be. And he was, uh, he, he was awesome. So it, it certainly helped to have a little bit of a ringer on our intern crew this year. <laughs> what you mentioned, you know, last year doing the, the full around the clock version of this and this year tweaking it a little bit from nine to 11. What else, having done this in the past, would have been the most valuable pieces of feedback that you've gotten either from your front office uh, or from other members of the community who have participated or got to participate this year? Um, I, I think, you know, last year we tried to do it all ourselves and we were kind of, you know, we didn't really engage any support or solicit support from the community in terms of jumping on the treadmills. We were just going to try to do it all ourselves. And I think this year we made it more of a collaborative, collaborative effort um, with uh, our corporate partners, with our local politicians, with the media. And I think that really helped us not only from a, from a mileage standpoint, but also just getting it really helped get the word out there and got everybody in our community behind it. Uh, we had another um, police officer who um, had run 50 marathons in 50 days uh, to support another uh, police officer who unfortunately lost his life in the line of duty earlier this year. And he came, I gave him a call on, uh, I think it was a Friday. And I said, listen, uh, I don't know if you're doing anything tomorrow, but we could sure use a couple of miles. Uh, and he said, yeah, I'll be there at four o'clock. He came out and ran 18 miles in, uh, in about two and a half hours. So wow. it was, uh, that certainly helped us out as well. Yeah. So at least next year, going into next year, I know the ringer that we can certainly bring out of the bullpen when we really <laughs> need some help. Well, speaking of bringing guys out of the bullpen, I don't know how much you guys talked about this with like the Nats or whatnot, but you have a team of athletes on standby. Did you ever were you ever tempted to ask like, Hey, can we get them involved in this? Well, we tried to get, um, uh, Matt Lee Croy and, uh, his son, we're going to walk. And, um, but they just, he, time slipped away from them, but, uh, we'll get those guys out here. I, I would rather have them focus on, uh, what they need to do on the field and let the, uh, shenanigans leave the shenanigans up to us in the front office. And, uh, you know, so we'll see, but we may get those guys out there next year. I'm going to volunteer enough. Sam Dykstra for this assignment because no, among the three of us who work on this show, Sam's the one who's like, oh, I do a half marathon. I'm in shape. Well, you know, yeah. what what productive members of society do. Yeah, if you guys are he in is. a real bind next year by like Thursday, I can come and do like 10. How about that? Let's go. Wow. He's just throwing it out a, there. Nice work, the, Sam. Yeah, Sam, it'd be the perfect opportunity for you to come. And uh, as soon as you're done, with uh, running uh, your half marathon, I'll make sure I got a garbage plate waiting for you because nothing. Oh yes, that's better. You know, I'm going to need right the carbs, so that'll be perfect. Carb up. Yeah. Well, actually, that that brings me to my next question. In terms of like, you know, there's always expansion in minor league baseball. You find an idea that works. What's the next thing? In terms of other marathon style things, have you guys ever brainstormed like what could be the next thing besides just walking on the treadmill? Uh Boy, you know, I, I will, uh, we, we haven't really come up with anything. Uh, you know, we're just still all in recovery mode right now. My calves are still burning from last week. Um, and I thought it would go away after the, you know, after the homestand ended, but I guess when you don't walk or run for like a year and then you do a whole bunch of it all at once, uh, 
if it doesn't work out real well. But um, no, we're looking forward to continuing to do something like this again uh, to raise awareness and most importantly to raise money. Um, that's what it's all about and, and reminding our fans to, to lead healthy lifestyles. We also did some cycle classes here. Uh, we did yoga on Saturday morning. We had a yoga class here out in the outfield. So a bunch of different things and um, uh, some healthy, you know, uh, eating messages were done by our friends at Wegmans that we played on the video boards. So it was a, a real collaborative effort with, uh, with everybody involved. So it was on Sunday that you surpassed the goal of 500 miles. You know, I can't help but think of, you know, the Proclaimer song, I would walk 500 miles. Did you play that at the ballpark or was there some sort of, uh, you know, special uh, celebration, you know, confetti coming down from the roof of the ballpark? What was it like when you finally hit it? Um, I think we all, um, you know, took a, you know, you know, lathered up in some Bengay because we were all exhausted <laughs> and really sore. Um, but, uh, no, I, you know, we were all very happy that we got to, to, to finally get to where we wanted to get to, but I think everybody just slept really, really well at the end of the homestand. Not only was it the end of a six game homestand, but after all the walking and running, everybody did, everybody was pretty beat. So, uh, but it was, it was a great, uh, another great event this year and we're looking forward to do it in the future. Yeah, well, to close on a slight tangent and on an unhealthier note, um, you know, the Red Wings are now on the road heading into the weekend, but they're playing uh, Syracuse. And it's yet another iteration of the Duel of the Dishes featuring the Rochester Plates versus the Syracuse Salt Potatoes. Uh, We had you and uh, Syracuse GM Jason Smorrell on the show, I believe it was last year, uh, talking about that rivalry, talking a lot of trash. Jason's not here right now, so you get a free chance real quick to just uh, talk about this year's iteration. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and any uh, any smack you want to talk or what, what the Red Wings are going to do to the uh, – or what the plates are going to do to the salt potatoes this weekend. You know, we uh, we took care of business in the first duel of the dishes here in the Rock, and uh, we defended the fork, but uh, in typical um, low-level hijink style, the uh, – dreaded Syracuse Mets came and stole the golden fork right under our noses. Uh, you may have seen the video at, uh, at their website that they did uh, yesterday. So we're looking forward to going into uh, the salt city tomorrow night back where it rightfully belongs because you know, who, you don't need a golden fork to eat salt potatoes. I don't even know why you would want it. <laughs> you know, maybe a spork is more appropriate for, uh, for a salt potato, but they're not that good. I'm telling you, they don't <laughs> taste that good. And uh, let me tell you, if, after running 500 miles, nobody thinks, oh, man, I could go for a salt potato right now. No. <laughs> you want a meal. You don't want a little snack. You don't want a side dish. You want a meal. You want some mac salad, some crispy golden hash browns um, covered with, you know, two hot dogs or two cheeseburgers. And then slathered with Rochester meat hot sauce, and maybe some onions and some mustard. That's what you want. You want a meal. You don't want a little snack. Well, Dan, I feel like you've earned a meal after just doing this interview because uh, he's still on the treadmill. He's still getting that <laughs> workout. That was not a. Uh, that was not just a, a brief kickoff to this interview. Dan's been on the treadmill this entire time. It's been very impressive. Well, I got a little practice last week and. Uh, uh, I'm trying to keep it up now and, and trying to keep uh, keep it rolling and trying to lead a, a little healthier lifestyle here the rest of the season. And uh, it's just amazing to me how much 
how fast the season is going. We only have five home stands left, and uh, it's the, the season is just blowing by. So, uh, but still a lot of fun to be had, and uh, still time for everybody out there to get to their their local ballpark. Except uh, you don't want to go cheer on the Syracuse Mets. That's one thing for sure. <laughs> yeah, with one exception. Well, Dan, thanks uh, so much for joining us once again on the uh, show before the show podcast and glad you could do this interview and get a workout in at the same time. It's it's multitasking at its best. (laughs) My pleasure, fellas. Always great to, to be on with you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, despite it being the quietest on-field week of the baseball season, it is one of the most transformative weeks of the baseball season as the Major League Baseball first-year player draft is now in the rearview mirror and a lot to be discussed from this 2023 draft because uh, there were some surprises. There were some things that, uh, you know, I think even down to the wire, I know our two uh, mock drafts at MLB Pipeline going into day number one and round number one uh, had the Pittsburgh Pirates going with Dylan Cruz as the top overall selection. He did not go in that spot. Instead, it was his LSU teammate uh, and Paul Skeen's a guy who is probably going to be in the big leagues at some point next year um, and has as good of a pedigree as any pitching prospect we've seen in probably over a decade since Steven Strasburg, uh, I think most people would say. Sam, um, just your initial reactions and biggest takeaways uh, from this draft here in 2023. Yeah, I mean, we might as well start at the top, right? And you talk about the Pirates going with Paul Skeen's. It really seemed like it was coming down to the wire there. Uh, there was some smoke that Wyatt Langford, the Florida outfielder, uh, could go to the Pirates. Maybe he was a little bit more signable um, than the other guys. I mean, he's also a really good talent in his own right. I don't want to discount him. Uh, he's definitely one of my favorite hitters in this draft. Uh, and then, you know, Skeens is on the table. Cruz is on the table. There were some rumors going around that maybe Cruz was going to ask too much from the Pirates and they didn't want to spend that much on him or use up too much of their pool. All of this stuff. And, and I couldn't wait to just have answers. I was so anticipating the start of this draft just because we didn't know which direction it was going to go. So Paul Skeenal ace uh, in their system now, a guy who they don't really have to develop that much. Good command, a really good slider, makings of a changeup. It's all there. I mean, there's not really much polish he needs. The only thing he needs to do is be able to show the same level of stuff every fifth, every sixth day. Because right now at LSU, he was doing it once a week. You know, you knew you were the Friday starter. You knew you were the Saturday starter, et cetera. Um, And you can ramp it up a little bit more. Now, all of a sudden, if you're there are going to be times in pro ball where he has to pitch twice a week. And he has to pitch from March all the way through September and hopefully into October if you're a Pirates fan. So we have to see how the stuff kind of holds up, but the makings of it are incredible. And, and, the thing a lot of people keep coming back to is you guys like him are difficult to acquire. If he's as good as we think he can be, it's going to cost a lot of prospects to acquire him in a trade, or you're talking about a 300, $400 million arm 
in free agency. So if you're the Pirates and you think I'm not going to be able to trade for that guy and I'm not going to be able to sign that guy, well, here I am able to get him now for just a signing bonus. Um, so I think that probably factored into their thinking. We had him as the number one draft prospect, according to Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, who do our draft rankings and MLB pipeline. So it matched up well in that sense. Nationals going with Dylan Cruz at number two seemed like a no-brainer to me. They were split between the two LSU guys. Whoever was going to fall to them was going to be the two. Does the Nationals rankings um, for MLB pipeline? Because now all of a sudden there's going to be a real debate. Uh, and I'm going to have to do some sourcing on this. Who's better right now, James Wood or Dylan Cruz? Um, James Wood, obviously reaching double A, has some success, is really tall, can hit the ball well, has some power, might have more power than Dylan Cruz. Dylan Cruz, a hit first guy, but only because of the hit tool is plus plus. He can play center field himself, um, above average run, above average arm, real five tool talent in this draft. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how those guys kind of shake out because Dylan Cruz, kind of like Paul Skeens, doesn't need that much seasoning and could be – it sounds like you know they're going to start him out at single A right now, um, but could certainly open up next year at double A. And does James Wood open up next year at double A? Does he open at triple A? How close do those guys share the same outfield will be fascinating, and, and it's only a good thing for the Nats. Um, Max Clark going at three, Wyatt Lankford, who we talked about before, at four, and Walker Jenkins at five. That was my other standout, at least of this first round, was that that was the big five. Those five players, four outfielders and a pitcher, were the big five. Were they going to go one through five, or was somebody going to drop? Was it going to be like a Max Clark or Walker Jenkins, who other teams might prefer college bats, and those guys start to slip a bit? If all of those guys reach their ceilings, we can, we're going to look back on this draft as being really, really good at the top. And the Twins getting Walker Jenkins at five, Rangers getting White Lankford at three, at four, rather. I think both of those teams must have been elated. I mean, Max Clark is a really good prospect going to the Tigers. Don't get me wrong, um, but I thought the Tigers were going to go with Lankford because of that college success. Uh, they go for Max Clark, who in his own right is a plus-plus runner a guaranteed center fielder, whereas Wyatt Langford seems more likely to play in a corner. I'm sure that played out into it. And maybe they prefer a longer development path. Maybe they think, hey, the longer we can have Max Clark, the longer we can make him into a Tigers hitter. We'll have to see how that goes. But it was nice to see the guys who we thought were the five best prospects in this draft going one through five at the top. What else uh, from this draft do you feel like will be sort of the the legacy or the theme of this draft? And what are some of your favorite stories? I know we've always got uh, some really cool things that we can highlight, especially after the full, you know, formerly 40 rounds and now 20 rounds uh, have passed. There's some really cool stories, even just in the first round. Uh, Arjun Amala, for example, the 17-year-old, a first-generation Indian-American who becomes the highest-drafted Indian-American player uh, in any of the four major sports. He's a great story. Um, there's some talent that comes from, you know, some somewhat uh, unorthodox places, two-way guys, guys who come from, you know, uh, areas of the country that are producing more talent now than maybe in the past. Um, what are some of the, the things you like most, storylines you like most, and things that will carry on as the themes to come out of this draft? Yeah, I mean, I really like what you said there about Arjun Mala. He was one of my favorite picks in this draft going at number 20 to the Blue Jays, um, not just because of the story of that and there is a bit that's huge he can make, uh you know make it up there someday in the major leagues but he was one of my favorite prospects in this draft because he is so young at 17 plays shortstop has some power there are some swing and miss issues 
But again, he's so young that I think he just needs experience and time to fix those. Um, so now he's going to do do those in the Blue Jays system. I think they got a really good get there at 20. But to go back to something else you said, Tyler, about two-way players in this draft, there are a lot of them. And they were a lot of them were announced as two-way players. And we'll see how much you know the Otani effect is going to have on baseball. But I, I think a lot of more clubs are thinking like, hey, it doesn't kill us to let these guys play two ways early. Um, now they were drafted as two-way players. They haven't played yet as two-way players, so we'll, or at least in the pros. Um, so we'll see how that's gonna go. You know, maybe teams cut bait pretty quick after seeing them in instructs or something like that. Uh, but the fact that they are willing to give those guys opportunities and the highest one drafted was Bryce Eldridge to the Giants at number 16. And that's a really good fit because the Giants made a high pick last year of Reggie Crawford out of UConn, and they have allowed him to play two ways early on. Um, so that seems like a good organizational fit for Bryce Eldridge. will be fascinating to see how it goes for him. He stands six foot seven, uh, throws from the right side. So he's coming out of high school. Reggie uh, Crawford was coming out of college. Again, two different scenarios, but this is something that continued to come up throughout the draft of like, hey, there's another two-way player. Hey, there's another two-way player. Um, teams are seeing some benefits in that. And uh, this might be the start of that time where we say like, hey, it's not just Otani anymore. Even if it, you're a guy who can come in and kind of do it like Michael Lorenzen did a few years ago, um, play a little bit of outfield, run when we need you to, maybe pitch the sixth and seventh inning here and there. Um, but still be a good hitter and rely on you to do that. Or Jake Cronenworth, he did that a little bit in the minor leagues too. Hasn't done that so much in the majors. Uh, but there's a real appetite for it, and this could be the draft that we would look back and really see it. But I think the number one takeaway, if all these guys perform as we expect them to, this is one of the deepest drafts I've covered in a long time. And even looking forward at next year's crop, um, this one is significantly deeper than next year. And I think that's the... COVID hold, holdover. Um, 2020, there were only five rounds. All of those guys who chose to go to college instead of getting drafted out of high school, this is the first year they're eligible now. And now we're seeing guys like Dylan Cruz, who easily would have been drafted uh, three years ago had he really wanted to be, or or guys like Wyatt Langford, or somebody even like Paul Skeens may have been popped late Um all of those guys were eligible now, and it made a really deep class and really a fun one to cover. I would just like to point out for my own self-serving um, takes that uh, University of Nebraska becomes the first program since 2015 to have its middle infield selected in the first two rounds. Shortstop Bryce Matthews goes 28th overall to the Houston Astros, and second baseman Max Anderson goes 45th overall to the Detroit Tigers. Go Big Red. I'm very happy about that. But seriously, Astros prospects. Uh, Bryce Matthews has been one of my favorite players to watch in college baseball uh, for the last several years. He is a really, really fun prospect who is going to be uh, very entertaining to watch coming up in that Houston system. So uh, I'm pumped for that. Selfishly pumped for it. And um, that's the thing that matters most to me about uh, all types of uh, drafts or what I can be most excited about for my own selfish reasons. No, that's fair. I mean, like that's... <laughs> I I think there's been an increase in college baseball this year. Um, I don't know if that's just because of like how good LSU was and how yeah. good Wake Forest was and how good Florida was. I mean, the big programs were really, really good uh, this year. And I'll be interested to see how that carries forward. But I love 
when you hear that, when people are like, Hey, I followed this guy at X college and the way things are looking now with NIL deals and more guys willing to go to school, I think college baseball is only going to get stronger and that's only going to help the draft. I mean, if people were following you for three years, they want to find out where you go in the draft, where your next steps are. So it's all good for baseball, I think. So uh, that is uh, just a taste of what is up on the site uh, and there'll be pipeline coverage of the draft all week this week. Some really good stuff there, of course, from uh, Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, and our very own Sam Dykstra. And uh, coming up, we'll take a swing through Ghost of the Miners with Josh Jackson, and we're back to wrap it up on the other side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson welcome back to ghosts of the miners in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was once the apple of a fan's eye. The others can only be seen in my mind's eye. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Asheville Overlookers. B. The Pittsfield Hillies. C. The Otisville Elevators. Aren't you high and mighty if you picked B, the Pittsfield Hillies, who popped up in the Hudson River League of 1905 and rose again in the Eastern League of 1919 and remained a level, steady presence on the circuit through the 1930 campaign. The earliest Hillies, the 05 team in the Hudson River League, knew almost exclusively decline as they arrived on the landscape mid-season with the relocation of the team from Saugerties, New York on Independence Day and fell down and out completely on July 25. The club was 13-49 and 49 at the time it disbanded. The Hillies took their name from the land under their feet, Pittsfield being the seat of Massachusetts's Berkshire County, Berkshire County being the home of the beautiful Berkshire Hills, and the Berkshire Hills being the home of the Pittsfield Hillies. And the home of the Pittsfield Hillies more specifically, beginning in 1919, was Wakona Park. That's one of many historically noteworthy sites still standing in the area. The Sam Dykstra Childhood Homestead is in a terribly long drive. The Norman Rockwell Museum is 15 miles down the road. And from Herman Melville's farmhouse Arrowhead, where he wrote a whale of a book right in Pittsfield, you can walk on over to the ball yard. 
Wakona Park, which faces due west in a manner prone to blinding hitters at dusk, is the current home of the future Collegiate Baseball League's Pittsfield Suns and was named to the National Register of Historic Places in 2005. Having been immortalized by Daniel Oakprint in a 1990 Sports Illustrated column and consecrated by our Hillies from 1919 to 1930. Over those 12 Eastern League seasons, the Hillies featured a number of players who loomed large with mountainous presence on the field. We're talking about crooning Joe Cascarella, who got his start in pro ball with Pittsfield in 27, returned in 28, and pitched in five big league campaigns before making something of a name for himself, belting out hits in nightclubs and on the radio. And who could forget three-time World Series champion Mule Haas, who first was a beast of burden for the Pittsfield Club of 24. Yes, Mule sure hauled Haas around the outfield grass, appearing in nearly 100 games for the Hillies and another 39 for Oklahoma City of the Western League that year. The Hillies hoisted themselves to the top of the heap only once in that year of rebirth, 1919. Under skipper Joe Birmingham, but over everybody else, they went 64 and 44 to outlast the 61 and 44 Worcester Boosters. You might say Fortune smiled on Pittsfield that season. Gary Fortune, whose 24 victories and 182 strikeouts led the loop. But in 1930, Hillies fans were in for rough sledding. The team's attendance had been dipping for some time, and the best proposed solution, installing lights at Wakona Park to facilitate night games, which eventually did happen 16 years later, was far too costly to propel Pittsfield out of the pits. The Hillies and the Hartford Senators were set to open the second half of the 30 campaign against one another on July 1, but instead, both teams folded. The Hillies were 32 and 51 at the time and would go into the books with the league's worst winning percentage, 386. Hartford was 35 and 44, a 443 winning percentage. But lest you think that losing alone led to the attendance lapse, both the New Haven Profs and Providence Grays dropped out of the league a couple weeks later and they were each over 500. The bottom line for bottom lines was that 1930 was a tough time in the Eastern League, as in the rest of the world. And that's how the Hillies went flat. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these colorful clubs showed sartorial strength in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Bremerton Blue Jackets B. The Goldsby Yellow Sox C. The Baton Rouge Red Tops Want to know the answer? Grab your Crayolas, or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, knows what's cooking at the barbecue, and I've got to grill him. Saying goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. Baseball returns to the minor leagues this weekend, of course, after the uh, All-Star break, the baseball break now coinciding with the Major League All-Star festivities uh, in Seattle. It was a fun weekend of uh, Futures game, home run derby, the All-Star game. uh, And now we're getting set to get back to the regular season all across the baseball landscape. Benjamin Hill, Sam Dykstra, Ben, promo of the week. What do you got? 
St. Paul Saints, uh, Saturday, July 15th. Uh, if you just saw this promotion listed and didn't know the Saints, it would appear pretty cryptic. New boar, who dis? But what that is, is a <laughs> midseason team pig replacement. Um, actually, I went to St. Paul last year and I wrote a story about this, but they have had a, the Saints have had a, a team pig, a ball pig who delivers balls to the umpires um, every year since 1993. And the story behind that, I forget the specifics, but St. Paul was originally settled, you know, or at least the white settlers by a guy named uh, with the nickname of Pig's Eye, Pig's Eye Perrant, uh, you know, a real, uh, a real character. And I, I remember looking into Pig's Eye and talking about people getting canceled. Pig's Eye definitely had a, a problematic life and times, but he was named pig's eye. So St. Paul has always had this pig connection. The saints have always had a team pig as a result. And on Saturday, new boar, new who dis. And looking at the saints press release, there is no load management here. Our four legged swine goes hard each and every day. There are no days off during the season. With that said, a six month season is a lot to ask of our piggy. The greatest tradition in minor league baseball, the Saints ball pig, enters season number 31. So at the halfway point of the season, we make the was it sow switch, S-O-W? Yes. Yeah. We make the sow switch. Fans will have a second opportunity to select a name for the real star of our show. We welcome our new pig with a tropical vibe on a Treasure Island Saturday. So a lot to take in there, <laughs> but uh, they're going to have a new pig. Uh, fans might get a chance to name them. And um, that's good, you know, no longer a pig all the way through the same one. Let one do it for a few months and then switch it up at midseason. Give the pigs a break. This pig's probably been waiting forever for this call up. This is the biggest. I want him to do I want him to do one of those videos where, you know, like they call the pig into the manager's office and, uh, you know, give him the give him the plug from Wichita telling him he's going up to to St. Paul. I think that sounds like a great idea. I like that too. You got to get in touch with the, the Saints front office and yeah, say, "Hey, it's not too late." Yeah, here's what you do. <laughs> oh man, so that's coming up in St. Paul this weekend. Sam on the field. What are you watching? Who's uh, who's the matchup you're most excited for? Yeah, I mean, uh, we got news during the All Star break that Jackson Holiday, who participated in the All Star Futures game, uh, came in pretty quick for the American League side. Didn't start at shortstop replaced Marcelo Meyer there, but uh, our number one overall prospect has been promoted to double A. This will be his third level of his first full season. Uh, I've long been saying, and I, I've said it on this program, that I thought he would be at double A by the end of the year. I did not expect it to be on July 13th. Um, he had a little bit of a struggle uh, at high A and then bounced back really nicely. And Baltimore's all about pushing guys when they're ready. So they gave him the shove uh, this week. He will be making his debut this weekend starting on Friday when minor league baseball returns uh, at in a home game at, at Bowie against Akron, which is the Cleveland Guardians double-A affiliate. Um, you'll definitely want to be tuning in to see how Jackson Holiday gets used to the double-A level. I've long said the jump from high A to double-A is the biggest in the minors. It might be the, the second biggest in all of baseball after triple-A to the majors. So uh, he's definitely going to come up against some guys who have some major league experience who are going to be significantly older than him. He's only 19 years old. How he reacts, how he adjusts is going to be fascinating to watch. But given what we've seen so far, he seems to do a pretty good job of that in the box. So watch Jackson Holiday's double-A debut on Friday and throughout the rest of the series against Akron. Tyler, what about you? 
I'm sticking to double A. I'm going to the Southern League uh, for this weekend, this series between double A Tennessee and double A Montgomery, which will be in Montgomery, home of the Biscuits. Uh, that's going to feature not only a couple of top 100 prospects and more, but a couple of top 15 prospects and some futures game blood. Pete Crow Armstrong, the outfield prospect for the Chicago Cubs, has been really, really good this season uh, at double A Tennessee, 272, 353, 476. His slash line with 10 homers and 51 driven in. Uh, and opposite him, on the other side, for Montgomery, it has been a breakout season. Really, you could say the second consecutive breakout season uh, for Junior Caminero, the infield prospect uh, in that Tampa Bay Rays system. A couple of stops so far this year. 36 games uh, at advanced A Bowling Green and now at double A Montgomery. Combined, he's hitting 333 with a 996 OPS. That includes a 303 mark with an 866 OPS through 30 games in double A. Just a couple of the names for you to keep an eye on in that Tennessee versus Montgomery matchup this weekend. And uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Huge thanks uh, to everybody who stopped by this week's episode, including our own fearless Josh Jackson. Didn't get a chance to uh, plug Josh at the beginning of the segment and tell him how great he was for this week's episode of Ghost. Hey, can I just thank Josh yeah. also for choosing his his choice this week? Uh, that was a very good one. It was a very good one. And, and it's, it's a Sam Dykstra fave. Easily. Easily a Sam Dykstra fave. Not <laughs> just because I'm mentioned directly in this spot of those <laughs> minors. Uh, but I will say he made it seem like, like, oh, these are things you can do in the area. If you're going to my childhood homestead, please just tell me ahead of time. Like, I yeah. feel like I should alert my parents. Go in there with the Dykstra family. Just, yeah. Well, eh, that's no. <laughs> it's still totally cool if you go. Just alert them first. Yeah, it's not okay just if I just volunteer your family that's to hang out right. with strangers. That seems like something I should be allowed to do. Yeah. If you're listening to the show, I consider you family. But, you know, we don't like <laughs> massive surprises. We just like, a, a message is all I'm asking. Yeah, if you need the address, email, email us and... Uh... I'm not giving it to either of you. I don't know if you guys know where my, my Palmer address is. Ugh, rude. I want to go hang out at that lake. You're always posting cool pictures of that lake. I want to hang out at that lake. Also, I will say, by the way, uh, the other day... One now of you're friends... giving people clues, Tyler. <laughs> we don't need to be giving people clues. One of my friends uh, who you met uh, in town a few weeks ago, uh, Ryan Doyle, one of my best buddies from college, he said, by the way, I was looking at Sam's Instagram the other night. That dude's a really good photographer. I was like, I know Sam's good at everything. He's a multi-talented, multi-faceted man. And as we know, he's a runner slash walker. So go visit his childhood. <laughs> so go visit his childhood home. <laughs> this is how I would like to end the show every week. If make we a pilgrimage. Make tradition, that would be lovely. <laughs> Well, that's what we will do. And uh, for everybody here at MILB.com, including Benjamin Hill, Josh Jackson, and the incomparable, illustrious Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Mon, and we'll catch you next week.